Tonight is uh, the next in the series of the I Am statements that Jesus has made. This one is the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Previously, we've gone through some other statements, and I'm going to do this very quickly just to hit the high points so that we kind of all get back together on, on, on the series that we've been in. Not just for the series' sake, but because all these I Am statements kind of interlink and overlap at some point, right? I've mentioned to you before, it's as if you've got a 3D image of Christ and he's saying, hey, look at me as the bread of life. Look at me, and he's rotating, and you get to see him from a little different perspective, or the light of the world, or the gate, or the good shepherd, and then, of course, tonight, the resurrection of life. So we did, I am the bread of life, and in that, we're thinking of Jesus as God's word is nourishment to our souls, right? He sparks and brings us to life, encouraging, sustaining, and fulfilling us, bread of life. And then we did light of the world. Through Jesus, we understand the world we live in and ourselves in it through Him. Good and evil and how to live true, righteously, and to reflect Him to those around us having been made in His image. Okay, so light of the world. Then we did I am the gate or the I am the door. And with that carried the idea that Jesus calls us to follow Him, to seek refuge from threats to our spiritual and physical well-being to choose to trust Him and in return find rest, peace, and provision. But with the caveat that each person must choose Him individually and consistently, not just once off. And then finally we did, I am the Good Shepherd. Jesus tells us that if we trust in Him, learn to follow and obey His voice, He will lead us to the places that we need to go. Right? He w- we will learn that not only does He know us and our needs better than anyone, He knows how best to care for us and guide us within the boundaries of what's best for us. And so he is the good, the good shepherd as well. Is that my phone? Sorry. I don't know. We'll put it on the Bible there. That might be sacrilegious or something. I'm not sure. Man, this thing is, this thing is short, y'all. I might have to switch over here. But anyway, so resurrection of life. Hey, we're going to pick up in John chapter 11. Uh, again, I'm going to try to keep, keep us on pace here so I can have time for questions at the end. Verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, John chapter 11 it says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the first thing you're going to notice right here, there's a lot of specificity going on, right? There's, there's specific people and places that are being mentioned here. So there's no doubt about whom this, this context of when he makes this statement who he's talking about, who, what's, what the situation is, and who he's centered around. Lazarus and his sisters are people that Jesus knows personally, right? This isn't a parable. You might think of Lazarus, and if you know the story of Lazarus coming out of the tomb, you might think that's some type of made-up story, but it's not. He's, they're giving some very specific information here about when Jesus does this miracle and makes, these, makes this statement. So he knows them personally. He's stayed at their house many times. So much so that the scriptures seem to indicate that in Bethany, in particular, their house was Jesus' base of operations in southern Israel when he was traveling around preaching and doing miracles. The Mount of Olives at Bethany is where Jesus actually ascends back into heaven after he's been crucified and rises again and revisits all the people. When he finally ascends into heaven, it happens right there next door to Bethany which actually is only about two miles to the east of Jerusalem itself. 
So Jesus doesn't just know about them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He genuinely knows them. They are his friends. Verse 3, So the sisters sent to him, so he's not in Bethany at this time, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, it seems that Martha and Mary have sent a messenger to inform Jesus about Lazarus' condition, and it's not very good. It's probably going downhill as we're going to pick up through the course of the next set of verses. It's apparent that Jesus, though, is both aware of Lazarus' condition, right, because he says this doesn't lead to death. He knows, but he also knows, knows what he's going to do about it. God is not ignorant of our situations and needs, guys. In this case, he knows exactly what's going on with Lazarus. He's very much aware. And the messenger likely went back to Bethany with the expectation that when he got back, Lazarus would be doing pretty good. He doesn't know what Jesus is about to do, but what he does know is Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. So in his mind, he's like, cool, I'm going back to Bethany. I'm going to tell Martha and Mary everything's going to be good. He's going to be fine. Of course, as we read on, we find out that's not exactly what's going on here. I want to pause just for a second to say this. We're talking about the resurrection of life, but we're not actually talking tonight about Jesus' physical resurrection. Okay? We're going to read his statement within the context of what's going on around at this time. So that's why we're spending time here. Verses five, starting with verses 5 and going forward. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Yeah, you guys are already frowning at me. It's like, all right, if you love somebody, why are you going to stick? He's, and he's sick. Why are you going to stay two days longer away from where he is? You're going to find a few more statements in this, this passage too, just like that. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Kind of a strange response, really, when they're talking about, hey, let's don't go back there because they tried to kill us with rocks before. But he makes this statement about day and night. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, the disciples are like, I really don't want to go back there. Right? Because it's not just you they're going to throw rocks at. It's going to be us too. And if he's, he's asleep, you guys ever feel like, like man, if I had the flu, if I could just fall asleep for a little while, I'll feel so much better. These guys are like, oh, he's going to be fine. <laughs> we really, really don't need to go back there, man. We're, we're good. We're good. And you know, if, if, I, That's the way I read what they're saying there, and, and I think it confirms it just a minute with what Thomas says at the back end of this passage. So he says, he's falling asleep. We go to waken him. They said, well, he'll recover then. Verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, you know, <laughs> How many times have you read like the story of Jesus with disciples and it's just like, guys, you are, are you guys idiots? What are, you, what are we talking about here? He's like, no, he is dead, basically. Lazarus, in his words, has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him 
So Thomas, called the twin, or Didymus, if you look at that, some translations give that name, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> so there's all these strange, like almost awkward responses within this little passage to something that you think there ought to be, there just ought to be different responses. But, you know, Thomas is like, well, we'll get to him in just a second. He lingered two more days. That was the first thing that came up. It's like, you love him. He's very sick, even unto death, and we're going to linger here two more days? Why is that? Well, he answers it in part here in verse 15. He says, so that you may believe. Then we have another one that's kind of awkward. It says, in an area where Jesus' life is under immediate threat, the disciples remind him of what happened the last time he went there. It's dangerous. What's his response? It's this whole thing about, aren't there not 12 hours in the day? Right? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because the light is in this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is letting them know that his mission and the time set aside to do his mission is fixed. He has determined to lay his life down and and the timetable and the manner in which that is going to take place will not be altered. His mission is not subject to the actions of others. His mission, in this case for Lazarus, is not subject to the emotions and the emergency and the urgency of, of the people because he has something greater in mind. He knows well he knows well how and when and where his life will end. It might also, in this case, be a reference, reference to what's recorded in John 9, 4, where he says, As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me, because night is coming when no man can work. Each of us have a time on this earth, a time on this campus, a time wherever you go to share the Jesus, the life that you have. But it will not go on forever. It is a set amount of time. So they have an appointed time. We have an, the disciples had an appointed time. We have an appointed time to do and be the mission. But it will not go on forever. And then finally, die with him? What the heck is Thomas talking about? It's like, oh, well, I guess we got to go and get rocks thrown at us until we get killed, right? So like, we might as well ride this thing out to the end. Just really strange. But they, they finally give in. They're going to go. He's determined to do it. And so they're going to go. Now... He makes a statement in there about, I'm glad I wasn't there when Lazarus died because he knows what he's got in mind to do. He has to declare something, and it's going to be declared through I am the resurrection and life statement he's going to make in just a minute. But if he was there, it would almost... Anybody ever see the movie Princess Bride? Yeah. Anybody like that movie? Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. Pretty funny movie. Anyway, there's a scene where the guy is dying. I forgot what his name is, whoever... The man in black, but he's also like the prince or whatever anyway. And they take him to the, the king's like exiled magician, whatever he is. And they take him there and he's like, he's supposed to be dead. And then the guy looks at him and he's like, your friend here is only mostly dead, right? Mostly dead is slightly alive. It's kind of funny. The whole scene is, I, I was going to play a video clip, but we don't have time for it. You can look it up sometime and see. It's, it, it's pretty hilarious. But if Jesus had actually been with Lazarus, and done something, they could have just marked it off as like he wasn't really dying, right? He was just sick, like a normal sickness, which in itself would be a miracle, right? If you've got a, a serious sickness and God heals you, that is a miracle, and it shouldn't be diminished. But God has something even greater that he, Jesus has something greater that he wants to do. So he's not just, if he was there, you've got to say, well, he was mostly dead. 
right? He wasn't, he wasn't quite there. And maybe he just looked like he was, de- he was dead. So we pick back up in verses 20, starting with verse 20. It says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, so there's word that he's on his way from where he was, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now Martha's thinking of a time out in the distant future, right? The Jews of the time and Christians up until this time, we all understand that God will eventually judge the living and the dead, right? There will come an ultimate judgment for everybody And in that sense, Martha's saying, I understand that, I recognize that, I accept that at some point in the distant time, Lazarus will be raised up, he'll be judged according to God's standards for his life. But that's not really, that's that's only part of what Jesus is saying here. So here's his response, and it's really profound. Verse 25, he said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and who is coming into the world. She makes some really contradictory statements going on in there, right? It's like, hey, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. It's like, yeah, I kind of get that you're going to raise him up. But then in the next breath, she's like, you're the Savior, you're the Messiah. You know, she's making a faith claim here that maybe she realizes something else is afoot. Something else is getting ready to happen. She doesn't know what it is, but she trusts that whatever Jesus has in mind is going to be good. And we need to do the same. So what he points out is that the answer to death is not the resurrection in terms of an event, but actually Jesus himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus himself is the answer. It's not merely the fact or the hope of a resurrection When he says, I am the resurrection and life, what he means is that no one can hope to escape death unless he is related to the conqueror of death. And we have relationship enter back into it. Paul picks up on this, repeating something from earlier in the Old Testament where he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, as a result of what Jesus has done. Now this is after Jesus has died, been resurrected, and ascended to heaven. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus has conquered death. Both its penalties and its finality. Right? We're all going to die one day. That's a weird thought to me. I don't know if I'm hitting a mid-age crisis, a middle, whatever it is that you hit or whatever, but you get to my age and all of a sudden you start thinking about, I was at a funeral for a family friend on Sunday and you start thinking about these things like, hey, I've actually got more time behind me likely than I've got in front of me, right? Now, I hope that what's in front of me is even better than what's behind me, but who knows, right? But what I have to accept, what we all have to accept is we will all die in some form or another. What we hate is the fact that we don't get to determine how or when and in what conditions it will happen. And that bothers us. But Jesus says, I've conquered death both its penalties and its finality, not just the resurrection of soul for eternity that we get to experience when this body quits working, because body, our bodies will quit working at some point, but the demonstration of resurrection to life now and for alternity. So it's a now and. It's a now and later that he's speaking. 
Because here's the deal. Jesus' resurrection creates and affords all of us eternal relationship with him. Revelation 3, verses 20 through 22 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to the one who receives me, believes in me, the resurrection and the life will be theirs. You will come and be with me. Now it says if you conquer, but the reality is you're just piggybacking on what he's done. Now this has not yet happened for them in the moment with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. All they know is their brother has died. But he's making them a promise He says, because you have the resurrection and the life, you have me. You have Jesus himself, not just an event. But you know what? That doesn't bring a lot of comfort. When I was at the funeral on Sunday, it was a triumphant time because the guy lived a really great life and his family did a great job of honoring him and family and friends and people came from all over the place. But in the moment, it's painful. He battled cancer for three years. In the moment, the questions come, God, why did you let him suffer, right? In the moment, Mary and Martha are sitting there. We'll see, Tiger. In the moment, Mary and Martha are sitting there trying to figure out, why would you delay? Why would you let my brother die? He was struggling for days, and you didn't come. Instead, even after we sent somebody to you, there was still a delay, and then you came two days later, and it was just too late don't you care when she had said this she went and called her sister Mary saying in private the teacher is here and is calling for you so Jesus sends for Mary and when she heard it she rose quickly and went to him now Jesus had not yet come this is verses 28 through 37 now Jesus had not yet come into the village itself of Bethany but was still in the place where Martha had met them so Martha has gone outside the village to meet Jesus and he's still there for some reason When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, this must sound familiar, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's in anguish. She's in deep pain. And she's saying what she, she she has nothing else that she can say in that moment to him because she's hurting so bad. But Jesus doesn't run from that. As you're going to see, he's going to have quite a different reaction here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I want to pause just before I read, start with verse 34 there real quick and say this. You know, when people say to you there's no difference between Christianity and all the other religions, it's not true. No other religion anywhere in the world in the history of the planet does the God that oversees and provides the judgment and the justice and the righteousness come down and live amongst the people to the degree where he 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 struggles with their pain and he lives out a normal life in a way it's the man it's the man Jesus and the God Jesus in one and so he feels all the emotions that they're going through all the loss that they're going through. Again, this is not somebody he's just heard about. He knows 
Lazarus. He knows Mary and Martha. They are friends. And then he says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest verse, verse in the Bible, verse 35, two words, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And so they complained. And so we asked the question, why did you delay? Why do you delay in my life? Why does he delay in your life? Have we all not had some time where we feel like the answer or God's action did not come in the time frame at least that we thought it ought to? And we struggled. Can I tell you this? God's delays are always delays of love. God's delays are always delays of love. God's delays are always delays of purpose. He had a purpose and his love for Lazarus in his heart when the messenger came, he knew exactly what he was going to do. It also shows the delays that he has a plan. He has a plan. Now, sometimes that plan gets held up because of people. We're messy. We're imperfect, right? Sometimes we get in the way of what God wants to do, or we don't mature to the point that, we, that God wants us to be or needs us to be to accept and receive Him, and so we struggle with it. So a few things real quick. Why, why does He delay? Might be that He, in order to mold our will to His will. God wants the best for each of us. Sometimes we don't always make the best plans for ourselves. And so He tries to, to mold us and shape us into His will that He may direct our steps. And that's not always easy, easy, and certainly not in the waiting, which we hate. And secondly, that He might build and strengthen our faith. If everything comes to you like this, there's no faith built up. If you want to be strong and lift weights, you have to lift weights, right? It's over time you have to do it. And you have to maintain it or you lose what you gained. That we might build strength in a, in, build and strengthen our faith. Perseverance produces faith. James 1, 2 through 4. He says, When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Character is being created in us that would otherwise, we'd otherwise would not have in the delays in the waiting, in the trusting. Even in the painful times, He's molding and strengthening us. And thirdly, that He might glorify His own name and not man's. Why are you maximal? That, that's egotistical right there, right? Glorify your own name. Yeah, if it was one of us, it would make sense. But what's being said there is this. You do not earn your salvation. You do not earn your resurrection, if you will. You do not earn your life in right placement with God and your forgiveness. You can't earn those things. Only God can. And so no works can save you. Nothing you can do is going to earn your, earn your place with God. You have to trust that He is who He says He is. That we might be able to see and know that God is who He says He is. That it is by grace and not our own merits that we're saved. As a result, though, we can trust Him to not only be faithful, right, but just and to be all that we need. It's interesting that our greatest ability sometimes to bring people together is at our own funerals. I saw people on Sunday I hadn't seen in probably 25 years. 
and we hugged and we encouraged each other and we caught up with one another. There's something unifying about death within families and friends circles. For the believer, there's unification also in death and resurrection with Christ. So what happens? So they've come to the tomb, verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. In other words, please don't roll away that stone. He stinks. He's rotting in there. How do we know? She says, For he has been dead four days already. Four days. No mostly dead in this one. This is all dead. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, it's not egotistical at all to say you will see the glory of God. We need to see the glory of God. We need to know that there's someone, somebody above us to provide the justice that we all lack, to provide the life and the forgiveness that we all desperately need in our relationships. Now, we need that. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. And if you're willing, not only did he say it to all the people that were standing around the tomb that day, he said it through the pages of the Bible to you and I tonight. I said it on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Mary had just repeated exactly what Martha had said. Lord, if you'd been here, he would not have died. No one had any idea what he had in mind. Jesus is about, by, you may not realize this in the context of the bigger story, Jesus is just about to be arrested and crucified at this stage. It's the last great miracle they say that he does. A couple things here that they didn't recognize. They didn't recognize his authority over death, right? Oh, I know at some point there's going to be resurrection. Everybody's going to be judged. I get that. But they didn't recognize his power over death itself. If we're not careful, sometimes the denial of Christ's authority, the denial of God's glory, what happens is if we repeat it enough, we'll convince ourselves with many friends that, it's not, that he's not capable, that the delays are actually God not doing anything to the point that we won't see clearly who he is and what he really is doing in our lives. Secondly, the Jews that are there, there are many because they're on the way to Jerusalem for Passover and, this, and Bethany lies along the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, lay guilt upon him and says, you can heal the blind man, but you can't come here and heal this guy from dying from whatever sickness he's got. How ungrateful we can be sometimes. Right? How indignant we get towards God when He has the audacity to do something not in the way we want or in the way when we want it. Almost at the, we're right at the end here. Some of you have heard my story a little bit that um, my father was the first person I ever led to the Lord. He died the next day. He was in the IC unit at the hospital. Had a massive heart attack. My brothers and I had been keeping 24-hour watch on him, and uh, I went home to sleep, 
And before I got back to the hospital the next morning, he had had a massive heart attack and passed away. And uh, during the time he was in the ICU, there was uh, a friend of ours who came in to check and he stopped by and says, how's your dad doing? And we're like, he's on the ventilator, we don't know, but at least he's awake for the first time. And uh, he's, well, I'm here because my grandfather's a few stories, few stories up in the hospital. He's got a hole in his heart, and so they've called the family in and say goodbye because there's nothing they can do. And uh, crazy thing that happened was my dad passed away the next day of a massive heart attack. His grandfather's heart was miraculously healed by God, and he walked out of that hospital. You know, I don't, I don't presume to know the mind and heart of God and why he does certain things, when he does certain things. I know this, when it came to my father, he answered the prayer that I had. He could have healed my dad too, but instead he healed this grandfather that was passing away. Sometimes the delays don't make sense, but I'm not, and I hope you're not, going to have the audacity to go, God, why didn't you do it when I wanted you to do it? Why didn't you do it in the way I wanted you to do it? Why didn't you save my dad and, and take somebody else? Somebody else's, his grandfather lived a long life. My dad was 61 years old when he, when he passed away. So you live with that. But you've got to reconcile that somehow, too. They have all missed that Jesus is living, giving, and proposing to them that the power of and the life in the resurrection is not only for then, it's for now. If you live with Him and through Him. So here's where we're going to wrap up, and then we'll go to your questions. Lazarus was, was bound, and he's like, unbind him and let him out, basically. Let him go. And the question begs itself, what are we bound up in? What kind of tombs are we wrestling or lying in in the dark and we either don't realize it or don't have the power to leave it? We need the power of Christ in our lives to pull us out of those situations, to awaken us to life itself. And so we need to, be, we need to quit being bound by the grumbling of unbelief. We need to quit being bound by the settling for the groupthink of misery and skepticism. Well, that's what most people are thinking. Well, it must be what it is. Quit being bound by the limits of humanness and our fallen nature and the mistakes that we make. And we talked to it a couple weeks ago about, hey, I knew better than to do that, but I did it anyway. Even Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, talks about his own life in that way, where he says, I do the things I know I shouldn't do. I do them anyway. So I think if, if Jesus was amongst us tonight, I believe His Holy Spirit's here with us, He'd say, come alive in me. Come out of that place. Trust that I am who I say I am, that I have the authority over life and death because I can lay my life down on the cross and I can pick it up again and I'll offer you the same thing. And this miracle that he's done for Lazarus was supposed to speak that in to the lives of all these people and to us thousands of years later as well. Come alive in Jesus and quit settling for the traditionally or culturally accepted expressions of who God is and who God is not. Knock, seek, come out of the dark tomb of sin, death, and unforgiveness. And He calls to us to be born again in the forgiveness of Himself, the resurrection and the life, and leave behind the tomb of this world. It's an amazing thing to think that God calls us to live with Him forever, but not just some far-off distant time and place, but a now time as well. Because He's not just the resurrection and the event that you get to be with Him. He is the life if you begin living in Him now by dedicating your life to Him, you come alive and you come out of the tomb of things that hold you in darkness. 
John finishes, this is the next to last chapter in his book, in chapter 20, he finishes this by giving you the purpose, he says, of writing all this down. Lazarus' story, Martha and Mary's anguish. Now Jesus did many, this is chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The resurrection and the life. Pretty powerful stuff, really. You know what I wish? I wish they'd said something about what Lazarus did after, after that moment. <laughs> All right, I mean, it was party at Mary and Martha's house that night, y'all. Definitely. But, um, yeah, God's not far off and distant, guys. He's in the midst of your situations weeping with you, understanding and knowing what you're going through. And not shaming you and holding you down in it, but rather say, no, no, come on, let's come out of that. Let's come out of that. If you need healing and forgiveness in your life and in your family, let's have that. Let's uncover that and bring that to bear and live. Did we get any questions? Mm-hmm. We did? Okay. Um, first question, if Jesus is the, res- the resurrection, do we have to know Jesus to be resurrected? Yeah, I think we have to define what know means. Um, I think you have to believe in him. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe, with your mouth and believe with your, in your heart that Jesus is Lord, in other words, he is the Messiah, he is, my, he is my forgiveness of sins, if I embrace that and truly believe that, then yeah, I will be resurrected with him whenever that time comes. But I also have him with me now in that, in that process. To know him, there were people that knew Jesus, so that's why I'm not sure how we define no, right? Now, if you take it from the biblical standpoint, to know somebody is a pretty deep relationship. In fact, it's so deep it carries within the marriage context, for example, the the actual sexual union between a married man and and a husband, to say, I know them. I've I've had intimate relationships with this person. So the level of connection and relationship is very deep. So in that sense, no is, is a very strong statement. Right? I am in a deep, interconnected relationship with Jesus where I have laid myself vulnerable and bare before Him and He has received me for all that I am and forgiven me of all that I'm not and therefore I get to, I get to live with Him. In that sense, to know Jesus is, is really powerful. Yeah. Um, you, when you were telling your story about your father passing away and then your friend's grandfather um, walking out of the hospital, um, why couldn't God just say both? Um, and would His glory not be shown uh, through saving and, and the miraculous healing of both of them? Yeah, man. Yeah, that's a good question. They're all good questions, actually. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm going to explain to you a weird dynamic for me, at least, to understand it. The, an- the short answer is, I don't know, <laughs> honestly. I don't know why God didn't just heal them both. You know, now that I've got kids, none of my, none of my, bo- my bo- two boys ever met their grandfather, right? Because he died 25 years ago. So they never met him. And I talk about him and there's pictures of him, but they have no connection to him whatsoever. And I miss that. You know, I'm like, God, why couldn't you have like saved my dad and gave him back to me? And we could have done all this grandfatherly thing and taken my kids fishing. And, 
Last Thursday night, Josiah had a great game playing quarterback at the high school and threw three touchdown passes. My dad was a coach. He was just like, that would have been his spot, right? And just up there cheering for his grandson. I don't know is really the answer to that. Um, the weird part is the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit helps us pray. It literally says that the Holy Spirit helps us pray. That's part of one of the interactions we have currently today in our lives with the Holy Spirit. He's, our guide. He's, our, he's a counselor to us, right? He's a guide. But he'll also teach us what to pray and how to pray for things that we otherwise can't express. And um, during that time my father was in the hospital, the, it's weird, but the only thing that I could pray was, Lord, don't let my dad die without having another chance to receive you. That's the only thing I prayed the whole time he was in the hospital. He was in a coma for a week, so we couldn't talk to him. And that prayer became desperate every day that went by because he wasn't waking up. And I'm like, God, how can I, how can I say anything to him? How can he receive you if he can't even wake up? And then one day he did. He came out of his coma, and the first thing he said, he still had the ventilator in his mouth, but the first thing he said was, what happened? He had no recollection of it, which also answered my mom's prayer. The only thing my mom could pray for was, God, don't let him suffer. And even though his body had suffered, he had no memory of it. He was completely disconnected from the bodily suffering that he had gone through during that course of that week. And when he woke up, my pastor, who just actually did the funeral this weekend, called me in the ICU because it was two days after Christmas. He says, how's your dad? And I said, not good. But he did wake up. And he was, told me, he said, Joe, you got to go in and you got to share the gospel with your dad. I'd been saved about a year at that point, y'all. I was 25 when I got saved. I was already, I'd gone to college and done Thirsty Thursdays and all that good stuff. Hey, seriously, I, I'd lived like a lot of people live. And so the idea of going into my dad, my dad was a football coach for 35 years. I have two brothers and no sisters, so it might give you some insight into what my family was like growing up. And to go into that man and say, hey, you know, I need to tell you about Jesus, it was a little intimidating. Even at, I don't know, well, it was at that point, maybe 26 years old or something like that. But God gave me the grace to do it. And, um, and so my dad received the Lord right there in that ICU room. And that was the last time I saw him. I, I left and went home to try to get some rest and and he was gone. So I guess I could have been like the Jews at the time around Lazarus's tomb and go, well, hey, man, you healed the blind man. Why didn't you heal, come heal Lazarus? I could be sitting around and going, well, you healed the grandfather. He's probably 400. He's like Methuselah, right? He's probably 500 years old for all I know. But he gets his family back. My younger brother was in his teens still. And his dad's gone. So, but when I look at, back at it now, I, I can almost go, you know, God answered what I prayed. And not only that, He gave me my father back. I will get my father back at some point. He could have healed my father, and my father could have gone off the deep end, spiritually speaking, with the rest of his life, and I never see him again. So I get him back in a very different form at a very different time. But... As a person, now I realize I can't be the Jews in that moment. And I'm not slamming Jews. I don't mean that just from the context of what we read, okay? Where I go, you know, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? I did that when it happened, okay? I felt that when it happened, but I didn't stay there. I moved on from it. Sorry. This will have to be the last one. Yep. Um, 
Do you think it was hard for Jesus to raise Lazarus um, because he knew that it would mean he would endure more suffering on the earth instead of being with the Father? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Read, I, I think I got it. Read it to me one more time. Do you think it was hard for Jesus to raise question. Lazarus from the dead because he knew it would mean that, he, that Lazarus would endure more suffering on the earth instead of being with the Father? Wow. Um, actually... First of all, there's no guarantee that Lazarus was going to suffer beyond that point, right? First of all, if I'm in Lazarus' shoes, I'm going to try to put myself in his shoes. If God did this for me, um, man, I would take the rest of whatever breath I got, whatever hours I've got left ticking off the clock, and man, I'd be everywhere. I'd be telling all kinds of people my story about my God and so even though I might be persecuted for it, and there was certainly that possibility that him going forward, I mean, of all the miracles that Jesus did, this is the one that the religious leaders of the time wanted dead. They wanted to put this to rest until, of course, Jesus himself is crucified and resurrected. Then they had to wrestle with, where's his body, and we don't have any proof, and we can't put that, back, get that genie back in the bottle. But at the moment, Lazarus being resurrected from the dead in front of many witnesses... There's two miles outside the city gates is a problem because they don't want anybody believing Jesus is who he claims to be. So in that case, I'm thinking, man, Lazarus, what was Lazarus, the rest of Lazarus? That's a great question. What were the rest of Lazarus' days like? You know, he's like cruising down through Chapel Hill. They're like, Lazarus, you're looking good, man. No, no, no death cloth on you, buddy. He says, let me tell you. Let me tell you about my Jesus. And it's not, again, even for Lazarus, it wouldn't have been just he's going to go tell everybody about a singular event. He knows Jesus. He's experienced him in relationship. And so it's not just because Jesus, I mean, there's points in the Bible where Jesus does great miracles in places and they basically shun him and kick him out of town. And that's, that's like, how, how is that even possible, right? If God was here tonight and was like healing people, will we kick him out of Chapel Hill? Maybe. Get rid of this troublemaker. He's causing problems. He knew him. And so his testimony going forward, maybe he had a week left, maybe he had 40 years left. I have no idea how much longer Lazarus lives. We don't know a lot about him. He doesn't say anything, even in the context of the scriptures that we have here. That's what's missing in my brain. It's like, man, what did he say? What did he do? I have no idea. And maybe that's on purpose because the idea here is not, not about Lazarus getting the light on him. It's about all of, all of us understanding that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Soon after this point, he actually lays his own life down in a very brutal way. But he picked his life back up again. And... Um, and in that way, you know, we talk about all the time living our lives in such a way as to reflect Christ to others. Who, who, who gets to reflect Jesus more than Lazarus? I was in a tomb. I was, res I was in a tomb. I was resurrected. I was in a tomb an extra day. Jesus was only in there for three days. I was in there for four days. Right? He, I mean, that's not even a bragging point, really. But, <laughs> um, but who better? He's going to like... Not only did I walk with him, I have a relationship with him. I have suffered and died and seen his authority and power in my life. And now I'm going to live. 
If Lazarus hadn't lived well before that moment, man, you better believe from there on he's living in a vastly different way. And if I can leave you guys any tonight, and we do need to stop now, that's it. Right? If you've got Jesus, if Jesus has brought new life to you and has transformed you or is in the process of transforming you, man, you ought to live different. You ought to live like a dead man walking out of a tomb. Because such were some of us, such were all of us at some point and in some form or another in our unbelief and our struggles. And, and it's okay to have the doubts and the questions. It's okay to express the grief and the questions and the whys. He expects that. We couldn't do any less. We're human, right? But man, let's live in such a way as He's brought us right out of the darkness, brought us right out of, of something that was killing us and separating us from God, separating us from the ones that we love so much. That's the way I want to live.